It's great to see you. Listen, when I first, uh, when I was here, uh, I wore shorts on two occasions uh, in the summer, and I was not planning on doing it today, but then I looked in my bag and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I forgot all that, so you're welcome. (laughs) This is a sign of how serious I'm taking all of this, so just, I'm kidding. Listen, I want to study God's Word together with you. The task I've been given in the next few minutes is to share with you some insights from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I was given a whole section, a big section, and if you read toward the end of the section I was given, it's right before chapter 4, it talks about Jesus descending and setting prisoners free, and that's why baptism saves you and all that. So when I read that, I was like, I'm going to leave that to Ezra and Mark, and uh, they can deal with that. So I picked just three verses. <laughs> Don't worry, it's still going to take all the time. But the, I picked three verses that I just wanted to share with you. I think they're encouraging. Um, let me pray, and then we will, we will jump into this in 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 13 to 15, okay? Our Father, I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful, Lord, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of where we live, um, where our feet uh, tread each day, or we lay our heads on our pillows that we are the body of Christ here and, and everywhere. Lord, I've been reminded recently of the joy that will be ours when, the, when you return, Christ returns, and we have that great meal together. So God, I pray that these reunions that we have, certainly for me, is a foretaste of what will be then when we won't have to say goodbye any longer. And instead, Father, we will enjoy you forever and uh, each other forever. Would you bless us now as we look into your word, open our eyes and our ears, help us to hear what you have for us in this great book of First Peter. We ask it in Jesus' good name, amen. There's an there's a online uh, website that is quite popular among many people who I would call more secular and progressive in the world today, it's called the Huffington Post. Um, A number of years ago, and by that I mean like five, six years ago, they published an article by Michael Weinstein um, that was talking about Christian pastors in the US military. Now, in my mind, when I hear that, I think, yeah, the US military of all the places in The uh, Western society, North American society, the U.S. military is probably the place that uh, a pastor is probably going to receive a warmer welcome than, than say, you know, where I live downtown Chicago or something. Um, Here's what he wrote about these pastors, chaplains in the U.S. military. He said, today we face incredibly well-funded gangs of fundamentalist Christian monsters who terrorize their fellow Americans by forcing their weaponized and twisted version of Christianity upon their helpless subordinates in our nation's armed forces. If these fundamentalist Christian monsters of human degradation, marginalization, humiliation, and tyranny cannot broker or barter your acceptance of their putrid theology, then they crave for your universal silence in the face of their rapacious reign of theocratic terror. He's good with words, right? (laughs) Indeed, they ceaselessly, these pastors, they ceaselessly lust, ache, and pine for you to do absolutely nothing to thwart their oppression, 
Comply, my friends, and you too become as monstrously savage as they are. I beg you, do not feed these hideous monsters with your stoic lethargy, callousness, and neutrality. Do not lubricate the path of their racism, bigotry, and prejudice. Well, he seems like a good guy, right? <laughs> In the Western world, uh, Christians have gone from being people who are considered pretty good people, kind, the kinds of folks that you would want to have as neighbors, to being just flat immoral. They're people to be opposed. The Christian gospel is to be opposed at, at every turn. The kinds of things, the kinds of lives that it leads to, lives that value life, for example, or that uh, commit us to peacemaking or whatever it is, that kind of life is opposed now. We, we are wicked for believing what we do about our world, about sexuality, about the uniqueness of Jesus. And it's gone from being, hey, I disagree with you, but, you know, we all live in this society. Let's just get along so we don't yell at each other next door to each other. No, I'm going to put flags and I'm going to put signs up in my lawn, and I hate you. Being a faithful Christian, at least in the Western world today, means incurring some persecution. Now, there are some people who really get angry with me saying that. Like even Christians. Ah, oh, it's not persecution. Persecution is when they cut your hands off. Per persecution is when you're near death, when they hold a gun to your head and say recant, and you don't, and they shoot you. That's persecution. Think about all the places around the world where Christians through the ages past have been fed to lions. That's persecution. Stop equating what you're experiencing as white Christians, that's the way it's phrased, with that. Okay, I agree. It's not that. But can we agree that persecution is a continuum? Like, the worst side of it is I'm going to kill you because you're a Christian. I'm going to hold a gun to your head and you have to say that you recant. Okay, that's the worst possible kind. I will kill you. But there are other kinds. I'll take away your business. I mean, that's not quite as bad. All the way down at the beginning, kind of in the beginning areas, though, can we just call it stink eye? Like you're stink eye persecution, right? I don't like you. I don't mind if you know that I don't like you, and I'm not going to smile when I see you. That, that kind of thing. When that kind of comes into a culture... I would call it some form of persecution. And that's the kind of thing that we're experiencing now. You know what's really interesting is the, First Peter's a great book to be studying because that's exactly the kind of persecution that they were facing. I mean, in their, in their society, they, their big sin was that they didn't believe that all the gods were actually gods. So if I don't believe that all the gods are gods, I only believe in this one God, all the gods, and I say that I'm living in the Roman society, 
I'm a little worried that you Christians, the more of you there are, you're not going to give the proper worship to all the other gods. You're only going to worship this one god. What if the other gods get angry? What if the god of cancer gets angry? He's going to send cancer to everyone. You've got to worship those gods and appease them so that they don't give everybody cancer or flood the land or whatever. And so these Christians were kind of like outsiders and looked down upon because they were bringing bad things upon people by not worshiping the other gods enough. It had not gotten to the point where they were going to get killed. There was no shedding of blood yet. But there was a lot of murmuring about how bad they were. There was opposition coming their way. And so when Peter takes up the task to write this little letter, this is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with a group of people facing stink-eye persecution, just like you. So when he gives advice about how do you stand up faithfully under that kind of stink-eye persecution, we probably, people like us should probably perk up our ears a little bit. Because in the next five, ten years, I mean, you guys can see the trajectory, right? So, how do I, as a Christian living in 21st century Canada, how do I live faithfully under stink-eye persecution? Well, he's four encouragements. Four of them. Should be three. But somehow, there are four. Four encouragements from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. Here's the first of them, okay? Have no fear. I'm not saying have no fear of the sermon. I mean, that's the first one. Have no fear. Have no fear. Look at verse 13 with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now that have no fear of them is the conclusion. So let me show you why he concludes that. Those lines that come right before it. Here's what he's saying. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you go just immediately prior to the two verses immediately prior this, you'll understand why he's saying this. He's saying, look, there's, there's nobody anywhere who's going to actually harm you if you're zealous for what is good. Okay, why? Well, the two verses prior, 1 Peter 3 10, um, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He pays attention to them. He sees them. You know how they do that nowadays? I see you. I see you, right? He sees them and his ears are open to their prayer. He's on their side. The righteous, the ones who do the things that were listed there, right? Keep yourself from speaking deceit, tongue from evil, turning away from evil and doing good. He hears their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, in other words, when your life is marked by these things because you have faith in the Lord Jesus, and the Spirit is manufacturing them out of you. All these good things, when that is evidence, it, it, when that's seen, it's evidence that you are 
with God, that God is with you. And because he's with you, he's for you. So if God is for you, who can, now you're saying who can be against you, right? Exactly. Exactly. So this is Peter's version of that phrase in Romans 8. He's making, quite honestly, the same point. So let me take you back to Romans 8. Paul says it this way. He says, for those, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, also glorified. Again, I've said this a thousand times. I was here for 15 years. I'll say it one more time. These are a golden chain. And every person who is foreknown is glorified in this, in this story. Okay, so those he foreknew, he predestined, the same ones, those he predestined, he called, right? Called you to salvation. Those he called, he justified. They declared you righteous before God. Those he declared righteous, he also glorified. Past tense, none of you are glorified. But he can talk about it in a past tense because it is so sure that it's going to happen. I mean, that's, that is a magnificent thing. Basically, from eternity past to eternity future, God has settled you, Now, you and I, we respond to that, and we're like, oh, my goodness, that's remarkable. Like, if that really sinks down into you, you're like, oh, my word. God has done this? I mean, the same God who splits red seas and speaks and universes are created and nobody can stand over against his will? That God? Yeah, that God. He's for me? Yeah. How much? All. And the question then you respond with, well, if God's for me, who can be against me? All right, exactly. And that's what, that's what it says. What shall we say to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. Of course, nobody. But you and I think, well, I mean, people can be against us, right? I mean, isn't that what Peter's talking about? Well, the people who are given the stink eye, they can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the people. The stink eye people. And that's what Peter, if you go back to the verse we're dealing with, this is, this is his point. Uh, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And we're like, well, nobody, because if God's for us, nobody, who can be against us? But, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, because he knows what you're thinking, he knows what I'm thinking. Yeah, but what about all the people who are doing the stink eye? They're against us. Okay, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you get the stink eye, you will be blessed. You know, in Greek there, it just says, uh, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed. <laughs> just the word, blessed. In other words, the fact that you're facing this difficulty and the stink eye from all these other people is a sign for Peter that you're actually on the right path. That, that, that you are, guys, you're experiencing the thing that Jesus experienced. And if you're experiencing the thing that Jesus is experiencing, you're with Jesus, right? 
If you're not experiencing things that Jesus was experiencing, you might be thinking, ah, maybe I'm not with Jesus. Right. Right, so Paul, just because we're going back and forth here, Paul does a similar thing in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, right before the verses I just read from him. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Can I just stop there because I'm a preacher? Do you realize how good your future is? Have you thought about that? Like you are a fellow heir with Christ. Like who's the richest guy in the whole world, right? Elon Musk, whatever. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Oh yeah, but you are a co-heir with him. Like in the, in, in the great moment, you're gonna sit across and God the Father's gonna be like, okay, he's like the lawyer. We're gonna divvy up the money now. It's you sitting there and Jesus sitting there. Jesus is smiling at you saying, we're, we're gonna get it all, right? You're a co-heir with Christ. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ provided, okay? But there's a catch. Oh, I knew there would be a catch. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, you're an heir of Christ if you're unified with Christ. And to be unified with Christ is not just to be unified in all the good stuff. To be unified with Christ in the resurrection means that you are unified with Christ in the death. So when you face all the stink, it actually means you're on the right way. You know, I'm moving to Chicago. I had, I've had a lot of people ask me, where's Abbas? I'm like you. When somebody said, says, oh, where did you live? Uh, Vancouver, right? Because in that area there. But then some people say, oh, I've been in Vancouver lots of times. Where in Vancouver? Well, actually, it's a town called Abbas. Oh, okay, how do you get there? So, you know, you give them the... the, the instructions, and they're like, well, I'd like to go there one day. And I always tell a joke when they say this, okay? So I'm letting you in to what I tell others about our dear town. I say, look, you're going to get on this Highway 1, and you're just going to keep going east, and then you'll, you'll run into, it'll look like farmland on all the sides, and even if you fall asleep, you'll know you're there when your nose perks up, yeah? <laughs> because... There is some farmer on the edge of our town that decided that he was going to blow the stink all over the freeway. Every time you come into our town, what if I come from the south? Yes, Sumas does that for us, right? They blow the stink. You, you know they're there when the stink comes. Now, I don't like the stink. I'm just not, no, no lies. I always am like, you know, I'm a dad, so I tell a joke. Sophie, I blame my kids, right? I don't like the stink. It's, 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 it's a hard moment, the stink. But if I, <laughs> just go work with me here, right? It's a hard moment when you're going through this stink. And, and you might be like, oh, I want to get out of this. But I'm telling, I'm telling you the difficulty that you're facing with the stink is a sign that you're on the right path, right? Right? Seriously, if people are shooting at you, it means you're in the proper military. Like, that's what's happening. If they're not doing that, it doesn't, it's a sign you're not. You're not on the team. If they're guarding you, it means you are a threat to score. If they don't guard you, you're not really important. But this, this is what Peter's trying, trying to say uh, at the end. So have no fear of them, nor, nor be troubled. Because you look, 
Even, even if you do suffer, it's a sign of good things. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. But even if there are people against us, that againstness, that stink eye, that persecution is a sign that you're on the right path and blessed. So don't have any fear. Don't be afraid. Don't even, don't even let it trouble you. If you're government, what if, what if they make laws? let them. Don't, don't fear the critics, but they might protest. Shut us down. Nobody's shutting us down. All right, church isn't a building. We'll meet somewhere else, like in tents in the back. Good Lord. Right? Like, they persecuted Jesus too. He died too. But he also raised, yes? And so will we. So have no fear, number one. How do we live faithfully under stink eye persecution? Have no fear. Second, honor Christ as holy. Honor Christ as holy. I'm gonna read verse 14 again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. What he means there is in your deepest being, in your heart, in the very soul deep down feeler, set Jesus aside as being the preeminent, most important thing for whom you will die. Do it in the quiet. Settle it now. Because when you get to the loud, when the wind starts to blow, you might have second thoughts. And it will depend on how deep your roots go down into the ground. That you staying, you continuing will depend completely on how deep those, how deep those roots go down. Decide now to honor Christ more than anything Else, because you know, half hearted devotion is the first thing to go. The, the people who aren't fully invested when the difficult moment comes, they back, they back out. They're, I'm staying down uh, along the, the river or near the, near the, near the Fraser River, and uh, uh, the house is lovely. If you go outside the house, um, there are like a billion mosquitoes, and they all are trying to attack me. I got so many mosquito bites on my legs. I go to bed and I cry because there's so many mosquitoes down there. I remember a few years ago, the same thing happened, and uh, my wife, me, my son Ethan, and my little, my little daughter Sophie, she was little, littler at that point, and we were walking down the dike trail, and my wife, she loves these walks, right? Oh, come for the walk. We're going to go for the walk, and it's going to be so great to walk. And, you know, I, my son and I are like, no, it's never as good as you say. It's always horrible, right? I'd rather not go on the walk. It'll be great. So we get down there. My son, Ethan, and I are like, uh, like every typical male on a Sunday afternoon. This is the worst thing, worst thing ever. Why do we have to do this and move our legs? We were fine on the couch. Okay, and so we get down there, we get out of the car, okay, put on a smiley face, yeah, and we're walking along, and all of a sudden, guys, the mosquitoes, every step you take, it's like, whew, what's that? You know, like there are dust storms every time I take a, and the mosquitoes start 
coming on me. And I'm like, what is that? Mosquito, mosquito, they're all over the place. And I'm like, there are mosquitoes everywhere. I am out of here right now. My wife's like, no, we can keep going. No, we can't. And I run back to the car. I get in the car and I shut the, you know, shut the door. I don't care. She can get bit all she wants. But I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the car. Now, here's the thing. Um, of course I'm going to do that. I don't care about the walk. I don't care about where we're going. Yeah, but when we get beyond it, we get this beautiful view of the river. I've seen it. Okay? You can drive to the top of the bridge, look over, and then go home and sit on the couch. But she wants to keep going. Well, why? Because she's committed to the view and the walk and everything. Yes, the half-hearted people who are just doing it out of duty are the first ones to go when the bad guys bite. That's, that's, how it, that's how it works. The only way to remain faithful amidst any level of difficulty or persecution is decide ahead of time what side you're on. P- please, listen. Half-hearted devotion will fade quickly when the temperatures rise. It will. Jesus tells a story. I, I, I use the language of roots going deep because, you know, he tells a story about farmer goes out, throws seed, and it lands on the path, and then it lands on some rocky soil, thorny soil, and some on a good soil. Well, that rocky one is a layer of bedrock underneath the surface, and the reason that the plant can't, it comes up quickly, but the reason it can't grow even further or withstand when the hot sun rises and beats down on it is because the roots are limited in their depth. In other words, before the sun came up, it never reached deep down. It never got to a point where it's like, no, I'm holding on, baby. We just couldn't withstand it in the end. Oh, man, how many Christians do we know? Christians do we know? They follow, follow Jesus out of a duty. Okay, be a good person, do all those sorts of things. But when the stink eye comes, when people start opposing, they're like, yeah, I don't want to be part of this. Are you kidding me? I'd much rather have people like me at work. I'd much rather have people smile when, that, when, when, I, when I come along. Joshua, when he dies, you know, in the Old Testament, you have Moses and you have Joshua, he goes into the promised land. He's at his, he's at his death. They've had conquered the land. It's amazing. This great story of victory. Joshua, when he's at his death, he gives this little speech and he tells the people, he's like, okay, everybody get together and let me remind you of how faithful God's been when we come into this land. Let me recount to you all the good things, like grandpa bringing you into the room and saying, let me recount to you all the ways that since I came from the Ukraine, the Lord has brought me to where I am, to where you have like a shower and a bed. And he recounts the glories of what God has done. That's what Joshua does. But at the end of it, He says these words. Now therefore fear the Lord, Joshua 24, 14. Therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose now. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers 
the ones they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Man, if that is not your heart's cry, I worry for you in the moment when the sun rises and it beats down on you. And it's rising, guys. One of the stories I came across um, a while ago is actually from NBC News in the States. Uh, it was, uh, do you guys remember the, the group called Boko Haram? It was a Muslim group that was in Africa and it was actually murdering lots of Christian people and kidnapped 200 girls. Uh, Habila Adamu was the name of a, a Nigerian Christian who NBC News highlighted. Here's, here's what they said about him. The father of one said the April 15th capture by Boko Haram of more than 200 girls from a boarding school brought back painful memories of the night he was shot and beaten in his home. He said, when I heard about those girls, I started to pray. Adamu told NBC News on Tuesday, Boko Haram have no mercy. All they want to do is drive the Christian community out of northern Nigeria and they won't stop until they do it. Many of the minority Christians in Yobe province were fearful of Boko Haram because the militants had attacked homes and businesses in the region, according to Adamu. The businessmen initially thought that they were soldiers on patrol near his home one night in November of 2012, but when I saw their robes and the AK-47 rifles, I knew they were not from the army, he said. They told me they were there to do the work of Allah. With his wife Vivian and his son David, now age seven, looking on, Four men forced their way indoors and asked whether he was a member of the police force or the army. He said, I am not. Then they asked me whether I would convert to Islam. And when I refused, they asked whether I was prepared to die as a Christian. My wife was crying, but I could not deny Christ. I felt powerful, unafraid. I, I don't know why. Before he could refuse a second time, a bullet pierced his neck. I fell to the ground, Adamu said. They thought I was dead because they stomped on me twice and shouted, Allahu Akbar, and God is great. Adamu mustered the strength to talk to his wife before slipping out of consciousness. She was crying. He said she was crying so many tears. Neither of us thought I would survive, so I told her that to live in this world was to live for Christ. told her to look after her son and herself. When I first read that, I was actually in Thailand sleeping next to a whole bunch of Laos, Laotian pastors, some of whom had their fingers cut off because they would not recant their belief in Jesus to go free out of prison in their country. How do they get there? How, how does somebody get from being someone like me to somebody like that? And the answer is the roots go down deep. You settle in your heart that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Come what may. And if that's not your heart, man, I pray that the Lord grabs a hold of you and helps you see his love and the, the glories of the gospel. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. May you see his love and the glory of the gospel so much that your life is, you're like, it's worth everything. Because it is. Third, be ready to give a defense. 
Verse 14 again, um, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, a total courtroom language. So when he says this, you should be thinking, all right, so Paul's, or Peter's basically saying that I am in a courtroom and these stink eye people are actually accusing me of a crime of being a Christian. And I have to be now ready to make an argument, to make a defense for why it is that I believe this. I'm on the stand. The prosecuting attorney is pacing back and forth, right? Accusing me of being a Christian. Why, he says, why would you do this? Right. What's your answer? Tom Schreiner, uh, he's a commentator on this passage. He says, the exhortation here is instructed for Peter assumed that believers have solid intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. The truth of the gospel is a public truth that can be defended in the public arena. Does not mean, of course, that every Christian is to be a highly skilled apologist for the faith. It does mean that every believer should grasp the essentials of the faith and should have the ability to explain to others why they think the Christian faith is true. Listen, the language of this passage is decidedly not feeling-oriented. He is not saying, I want you to, while you're on the stand, answer the question, when he's asking you the question why, to say, well, I just sort of feel that way. Why do you believe in Jesus? Well, I feel good when I think about him. <laughs> we're not, listen, we're not Mormons. Mormons, what, if you go to a Mormon, one of the more, things the Mormon will do is say, listen, what I want you to do is take this book of Mormon, I want you to pray and see if you have a feeling, a burning in your bosom, they say, and then you'll know it's true. We're not those people. I'm gonna give you a Bible and say, just pray to the Lord and see if you get a liver quiver, baby. That, I'm not gonna say that. What I am going to say is, I want you to take this Bible, I want you to study it, I want you to ask you all the questions you can possibly ask it, and see if in the end, Jesus rose. Apply all of your reasoning and all of the things, all the, prosecute it. And in the end, is it true? I don't care if you feel like it's true, is it True. So can you give a defense like that? Again, I'm not asking you to give your experience with Jesus. I'm not asking you to give your feelings about him. You have all of those. I am asking you, can you give a defense, a reason? Two questions like, um, why do you believe there's a God, especially when there's so much suffering in the world? Why do you believe that Christianity is truer than other religions? Why do you believe that homosexual acts are morally wrong? Why do you believe the Bible can be trusted? Isn't it hopelessly contradictory? Why do you believe Christianity when science has clearly disproved the whole thing? How can you say that God is loving when according to you, he sends people to hell? Look, I'm not asking you to go get a doctorate. And I'm not saying, oh, you better go study all of the apologetics books in the entire world. But look, as a Christian, put your roots down. 
Be ready to give a defense. All right, last one. When you give the defense, do it with gentleness and respect. In your hearts, verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, Paul put that, or Peter put that there for me. I know he did. He's like, there's gonna be a guy named Jeff one time and he's gonna be a jerk about this. And so I'm in a gentleness and respect. I say that because I've had so many experiences in my life where I believed that the winning of the argument is the goal. And so I, when I was in high school, this dear girl named Bronwyn, she, she said, I'm a Druidic pagan. And I was like, huh, so you know you're going to hell then. That was my first line. <laughs> it's like, it went nuclear. I dropped this on you. You want to pray to receive Christ? You know, like, it's... It ruined our relationship for years. I saw her like after, after I went through college, I saw her years later and she was working at a cafe and I went, Bronwyn! And she pretended to have an Irish accent and pretended she didn't know me. Like that bad. There's a way, there's a way to stand over against stink eye persecution and respond in a way that is honoring, respectful, and non-Twitterish, and non-Facebookish. In fact, as a general rule, don't respond on Facebook. I mean, come on, just don't. So, <laughs> how do you do this? Look, I just wanna read a passage that I think, it, this is how we're gonna end. I'm just gonna read a passage where the Apostle Paul, I think, does exactly this when he gets to Mars Hill. Bunch of people there who don't agree with him. In fact, they, they think he's an idiot for believing in the resurrection from the dead. The Epicurean philosophers there are like, there is nothing after death, okay? There's nothing after death. The moment you mention judgment or resurrection is the moment they close their ears. But listen to the way that he handles these people, these people who believe that he's immoral, that his non-worship of all the gods is going to lead to a whole bunch of bad things. Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The phrase there, he's, he, got, he got mad. He got mad because all these dear people were, were being blinded by all of these idols, and there's only one true God. And so he reasoned then, oh, there it is. He reasoned in the synagogue. You can go in there and say, well, you know, I'm gonna tell you about Jesus, and he's my friend, and we're buddies. Nope. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? See, right there, I'm like, okay, it's on. Drop the gloves. <laughs> Call me a babbler, you stupid, you know? Ready to go. Got a tweet ready. Call me a babbler, you What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, uh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears and we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, like, the intellectual center of the world of that day. Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, you are absolute idiots for believing the crap you do. 
No. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. We are. As I passed along, I observed objects of your worship, and I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So what there is, what, what therefore you worship is unknown, I want to tell you about. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You guys have all these temples for your gods. He doesn't live in temples like that, nor is he served by human hands. You don't need to bring him oranges as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. I mean, he's sovereign. Everything you see around you is a result of what he's done. That people would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. See, the things that you guys are experiencing, this discussion you're having, is you feeling your way toward him. Don't you see? That he's actually not far from each one of us. In fact, in him we live and move and have our being. That's your own poets. They say that. Isn't it crazy this guy knows they're poets? It's almost like he's done research to give a defense. For we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we, we ought not to think of the divine being, being like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, these little statues. He's not that. Because he's, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because listen, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He does not back down from the difficult words that the Epicureans are going to freak out about. He builds a bridge toward them, and then he gives them the, the truth. He doesn't try to butter it up. He doesn't try to get out of it. This is what is true. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some, some mocked. And again, if they were mocking me, I'd be like, oh, come on. I've got a lot of things to say to you. But he doesn't. Because he understands that when he preaches the gospel, some, some will come. Some said, uh, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some joined him and believed, and among whom were also Dionysus. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Look. Guys, we are moving on this continuum further away from stink eye and much closer to death. We are. So choose this day who you will serve Prepare yourself for the moments where persecution will come. Dig your roots deep in Jesus. And be kind. One day, it will all be worth it. Let me pray. Father, um, the whole book ends with um, amen, come Lord Jesus. And I feel more and more that that's our prayer. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Make all things right. It is difficult to be on the receiving end of 
hard words and criticism and mockery. But I pray, Father, that the more that we, we, we see it coming, I pray the more that we would be driven to our knees in faith, to our hearts, the more that we would drive ourselves into the church and taking advantage of all the ways that the church wants to disciple us and, and to help us build our roots down deep. Father, would you spur in our hearts a decision now, not to just feel about you, but to know you, to know you in your richness and manifold glory. God, would you just help us to feel that way? And ultimately, Lord, would you keep us? You're the only one who can keep us. We don't stand a chance, Lord, unless you keep us. So we pray to that end. And we are thankful for it in Jesus' name.